Matthew 27, 62 through 28, 15. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, uh, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave him a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Thanks, Nikki. And good morning. Uh, welcome again to High Wealth Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we want to welcome you as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate our risen Lord. If you're a visitor, I kind of like I said earlier, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving up part of your Sunday morning, whether you uh, know someone getting baptized, whether you're someone in the neighborhood, or you're just checking us out. Maybe you have connections here, or friends, or family that worship here. We want to welcome you. We, we are very glad that you are here uh, this morning. As I was uh, tucking in my daughter to bed last night, she knew I was preaching today, and she says, what are you going to preach on, Daddy? And I told her, uh, it's Easter, baby. I'm going to preach on the empty tomb. And as we uh, just heard uh, in Matthew, our passage read today, the angels uh, sang to the women and to us this morning, he is not here. He is not here, for he has risen. So here in our story, as we pick up in Matthew, Jesus has, has just been crucified, and he's in a tomb, and we see some of, uh, we get some insight into the scheming that Jesus' enemies are still doing, even after they have executed him. They remember that he claimed that he'd come back to life, and so they try and stop uh, this rumor, this fraud, uh, to continue. So they do whatever possible, by any means possible, they try to keep the disciples from stealing the body. So this, this, this scene actually, as I was studying it, kind of reminded me of uh, the scene in The Princess Bride. Maybe 
You've seen it. So there's a scene with this uh, evil prince. He's on the left. He's going to marry the princess. And he knows that um, the the man in black is going to come rescue this princess. And so he's doing everything possible to keep uh, the man in black away from rescuing the princess. And so his, his guy comes up and he said, give me, give me a report. And the guy's like, there's a, huge big, there's a huge door and it's locked and I have the only key. And there's 30 guards guarding this one door, the one entrance. And the prince goes, double it. So this, this kind of reminds me of, of what's going on here in our story. Uh, a pilot, the religious rulers, they're doing everything possible to make sure that this executed false messiah just uh, ends, that his story ends, that his followers give up. These Jewish and Roman leaders are going above and beyond to do anything possible to make sure that the disciples cannot steal Judas's, or Jesus's, not Judas's, Jesus's body. And Pilate even says, make it as secure as possible. Use all your resources. Keep that tomb secure. Do not let the body leave. And that is what sets up this true and historical event that literally changes the entire world. It literally changes all of human history. The executed Messiah would overcome not just professional soldiers and not just an unmovable boulder, but would overcome the undefeatable enemy that all humans have of death. But before he can defeat death, we must he must first have actually died. There's some, you know, objections to Jesus' resurrection saying, well, he didn't truly die. So he hung on a cross, yes, but he was just powerful enough to, to get out, and that is why people saw him post-crucifixion. But that's just not what the evidence tells us. It's not what the story tells us, nor what history tells us. Jesus truly did die. Unlike all the other uh, False messiahs that have come before him and that were executed and their movements just ended. Unlike uh, the man in black and Princess Bride who was just mostly dead, Jesus was fully dead. And his enemies did everything possible to make sure that Jesus was dead. Like we just saw, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and Pilate, the Jewish and Roman rulers did everything possible to make sure Jesus was executed. And every other time, it had worked. Every other Messiah or, or, or king that kind of rose up and tried to overthrow the Romans or claim that they were the Messiah, putting them down actually stopped their movements every other time. Not only that, but Jesus was crucified by professional executioners. The, the, the people that nailed Jesus to the cross and hung him and made sure that he was dead were professionals. It was their job, and they were very good at it. And they uh, had great uh, motivation to be really good at their jobs. If that person hung on the cross did not die, they would be thrown up on the cross after them. So that huge motivation to make sure. The story uh, uh, is told in all four Gospels. Jesus truly died. He was whipped nearly beyond recognition. He was speared in the side and blood and water flowed out. And the executioners, everyone watching, including these leaders, the Jewish and Roman leaders, knew that Jesus was truly dead. And he was buried. He was buried for days in a tomb. He was put in a tomb, a tomb that's location was public. The disciples knew about it. The rulers knew about it. And what's interesting in our story, in Matthew's Matthew's account, we see that 
Jesus' enemies remembered his message. It's kind of it's strange, right? Jesus' enemies said, hey, we remember what he said. Remember when he was alive? He actually said this would happen, but that he would come back, to de- come back from the dead three days later. And so his enemies are, are uh, scheming. We read that back in verse 63. Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made as secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will become worse than the first. So the leaders made this tomb especially secure. They rolled a huge boulder uh, into a slot, leaning up against the entrance to this tomb. They put guards in front of this tomb. Remember, professional guards, whose job it was to keep that dead body inside the tomb, or else they too could be executed. And if you remember any uh, of the story prior to this, if you know uh, when Jesus was arrested, some of his disciples even tried to protect Jesus, but they did a horrible job of it. It's even recorded that Peter, trying to protect Jesus from being uh, arrested, takes a sword, and what does he do? He just swings and misses, cuts off a guy's ear. So it's very, very unlikely that trained professional soldiers would be able to be overtaken by the disciples who are quite inept at, at most things. And not only that, but they also sealed the tomb. They took wax, poured it on the, the boulder that was rolled against the entrance to the tomb and put a seal on there telling people, if you mess with this rock, if you try to get this body you will suffer the full consequences of the Roman authorities. And it seemed to work. For days, there was just silence. For days, the soldiers stood there in front of the tomb, waiting and waiting. And then, early Sunday morning, Jesus was raised from the dead. Early Sunday morning, An earthquake happened, the stone rolled away, and the dead Jesus was raised from death. The guards fainted out of fear, an angel showed up, and just uh, a few hours later we see that a few of Jesus' disciples show up. Two, uh, recorded here, two women come to the tomb, they want to anoint his body now that the Sabbath is over, now they can actually spend more time with his body and anoint it, they want to be with their, with their Lord, with their rabbi, with their teacher. And they know where his tomb is at because of its public knowledge. And when they arrive, they're astounded. The tomb is empty. And they wonder who has stolen his body. And they see an angel there. And he tells them, this Jesus that you're looking for, he's not here anymore. He has risen. Look, the guards are fainted. Look, the, the stone is rolled away. Don't believe me, even go inside and look. There, right there, that's where he laid. But the body is gone. So they're told to go tell the rest of the disciples, the 12 disciples that are not there, that are not anticipating Jesus' resurrection. The angel tells them, go, tell the disciples what has happened. Run, now, go tell them that the risen Christ will meet them in Galilee. And some of you might be thinking, whether you're, maybe you're in a Christian, might be thinking, but this is just so hard to believe, right? I've never seen anyone get out of a grave. I've never seen anyone dead for three days come back to life. 
I'm a scientist. I'm a man of, uh, of reason. I've studied this. This just can't be true. Maybe I even want it to be true, but dead people don't come back to life after three days. It must be made up. Yet, one piece of powerful evidence in Jesus' resurrection that this was not made, out, made up is that the gospel accounts, all four accounts of Jesus' resurrection, share that the first people to see the resurrection were Jesus' female disciples, were women. And they were the first ones commanded to then go and be the first evangelists, to go tell the disciples and anyone who would listen that Jesus is back. He is no longer dead. He is risen from the grave. Let me explain why this is so important, that the, woman, uh, that the women being the first evangelists as a great defense or, or uh, apologetic for this really happening. In the first century, women's testimonies were just not valid. Sadly, in, in Roman and Greek and Jewish culture, even Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, writes that even two women in court, their testimony would not count. And he goes on to describe them in uh, negative terms. But it's not just uh, Josephus as well. Even some of Christianity's greatest enemies, including a, a Greek philosopher named Celsus, argued against Jesus' resurrection because... Christian tradition and, and the gospel writers all said that it was women who first saw the risen Jesus. And so we argued, we can't trust women. They're so foolish. They're so naive. So this has to be made up. This cannot be true. And so if this were a story that were made up, if this were the disciples in the last ditch, ditch effort writing down a very elaborate lie the way that they wrote it would not have persuaded the first audience. Would not have persuaded hardly anyone in Greek or Roman or ancient Jewish life. Yet Jesus is flipping the world on its head. He's showing himself to people that were on the lowest rung of society. He's showing that it doesn't matter what your education or income or gender or ethnicity is but that all we must do is believe in him. And we see Jesus doing this as he calls these, these women to be the first evangelists. So Jesus shows up to these women physically and in person after the angel talks to them and they touch him. They see him. They embrace him. He's alive. They cannot believe it. He's real. He's not just a ghost. They're not just hallucinating and they worship him. They worship him. Later on in the story, we read that Jesus was seen not just by these women, not just by the, the 12, 11 disciples, but by hundreds of people. And he ate with them, and they, and they touched them. And it was recorded, and that uh, record of that was spread throughout the ancient world while these uh, people were still alive. So the enemies could actually, or people who are interested or, or uh, investigating could actually go corroborate these stories with the, the, the people that were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And this spread and spread and spread despite the Romans and the Jews' greatest efforts. I was uh, online this week uh, looking, and uh, I love memes. I think they're pretty funny. And saw this one today. The, the most useless things ever, if, if you can read that. First one, we have a sign that says, sign not in use. 
We have a uh, balcony with no door. We have a gate that you can just walk around. And something else, most useless thing ever, guards and uh, uh, stone in front of Jesus' tomb. So despite Jesus' enemies' greatest efforts, remember, Pilate said, do everything you can. Make it as secure as possible. Jesus was still raised. We read about that in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I was talking with uh, a woman here from Hiawatha about this passage, and she's like, how, how just crazy is it that these religious rulers knew what really happened? They knew what really happened, right? They, they, they heard from the guards. The tomb was empty. There's no other possible explanation, and they don't believe. Do you think about that? They don't believe, but instead... They're, they're, they're motivated by power. They're motivated by money, the guards, right? They keep their mouth shut. They make up a lie. And we've actually talked about this. If you've been here for our study in John again and again, miracles do not equal faith. If you think that if I just saw another miracle, another sign, God doing something great, I would for sure believe. Here in our story, we see that's just not the case. We see the rulers, the guards see exactly what happened and choose to keep their power or are motivated by money in order to save their own skin or to keep the status quo or to just keep from having to believe that Jesus really is alive. Yet we know throughout the, the, the Bible, throughout history, that this, this cover-up did not work. It did not slow down the spread of Christianity at all. So that's the story. That's the story of the resurrection. That's the story of Easter, the true story that's corroborated by, by many different eyewitnesses that has much evidence for it. If we look in history, the disciples changed lives, the, the empty tomb. But for many of us, we're still kind of wondering, okay, maybe I believe that. Or maybe you don't still. But we're still asking the question, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this story? Well, first, we should just be amazed. We should stand in awe about what Jesus has done. And on top of that, it, this story gives us the evidence and proof that Jesus really is who he said he is, that he really is divine, that he really is God in human flesh, that he is our representative and king, and that he has defeated our great and ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death. Jesus truly is God and proves it here. And the disciples, when they see that, they believe it. They understand it. It clicks. And we see three responses to the shocking truth that Jesus truly is God. First thing we see is it starts with the angel saying, do not be afraid. And Jesus, then when he interacts with the women, he says, the same thing. The first response to Jesus being God, to Jesus being raised from the dead, is to not have fear. 
So Jesus tells the disciples, don't be afraid. You might be wondering, afraid of what? Right? Afraid because ghost Jesus just showed up? Maybe that's part of it, but there's so much more than, than just that. Jesus is telling them, because of what just happened, you do not need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid. First thing that we don't have to be afraid of is we don't have to be afraid of judgment. Now, if we remember uh, what happened right before our story, or even it was hinted at in our story, Jesus' disciples weren't great disciples, especially there at the end. If we compare Jesus' enemies to Jesus' disciples, who's waiting for Jesus to come back from the dead? Who remembers that Jesus said, I have to die and I will come back in three days? Who's waiting? It's actually not his disciples. And from the other gospel accounts, we see the women even going, they're not expecting Jesus to be raised. They just want to be close to their dead rabbi and they want to anoint his body. So Jesus shows up and the first thing he says to them is, don't be afraid. I know you screwed up. I know you abandoned me. I know you left me. I know you didn't remember what I taught. I know you didn't believe me. But you don't have to be afraid of judgment. You're no longer guilty anymore. These two women, and later Jesus' disciples, and all of us here in this room who have put our trust in Jesus, we are welcomed. Despite being guilty, Despite deserving judgment, we are welcomed, pursued, chosen, forgiven, and loved by the risen Savior. Notice in our story, did, the, did these women do anything yet? They didn't do anything yet to earn forgiveness. Right? Jesus just shows up and he tells them, greetings, don't be afraid. No judgment, no condemnation, no punishment, no guilt, but rather just pure mercy. Just undeserved grace without the women having done anything to deserve it or to make Jesus respond to it. And it's not just for these women. It's not just for the, the, the other disciples, but for us as well. We don't have to fear judgment anymore. If we are in Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus, no more judgment, no more condemnation or guilt for anything, anything you've done, because Jesus himself took on that punishment on the cross just a few days prior. And all he says is just put your trust not in yourself and being a better person and working off those sins and paying penance, but just trust me and you will receive forgiveness and reconciliation, and freedom, and healing, and eternal life. This is what the New Testament says about what Jesus did. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins. Jesus was delivered over to his enemies. He was executed for your sins, for my sins. And he was raised. It doesn't stop there. And he was raised for our justification. Jesus is uh, being raised by the Father brings you and me justification. It removes our guilt. Putting our faith in him brings us justification. We are declared innocent. Do you believe that here today? Maybe you have believed that before, maybe you haven't. But do you believe that? Because Jesus was raised from the grave, if you put your faith in him, you do not have to fear judgment anymore. 
What are you afraid of judgment right now? What have you done in your past, this weekend? What have you thought? What have, you, what have your motives been? If you put your faith in Jesus, he tells you, you do not need to be afraid. I will remove all judgment from you. You will no longer be guilty. I will take away your shame and your guilt. But Jesus continues, it's not just he takes away judgment and, and fear of punishment because we have rebelled against God and because we are sinful. But Jesus also says we no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear death. Jesus rose from the grave proving his divinity. He, he escaped the only enemy that every single human has fought against and lost. And if we put our trust in him, not ourselves, he offers us victory over death through him. Listen now, the early Christians described Jesus' resurrection, what it did for us, for those who trust in him. 1 Corinthians 15, we read, for this, perishable, uh, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? This is how Christians see and understand Jesus' resurrection is that we have perishable, mortal bodies right now, but through faith in him, Jesus will make these actual physical bodies one day. As Peter just said a few minutes ago, Jesus is the first fruits, his resurrection is the, the first example of what is promised to any of us who put our trust in Jesus. And so through faith in him, we now put on immortality. We now, these bodies become uh, eternally imperishable. And it allows us to even hope to whisper, to say these words, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The early church believed this and it transformed, not just them, but transformed the entire ancient world and spread across this globe. Historian Kyle Harper writes about how Christianity thrived in the bleakness of the first few centuries despite pandemics and, and war and poverty, and hardships, and persecution. Listen to this. He, he says, For Christians, this, way, or this life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. What was important to the Christians was to orient one's life towards the larger story, the cosmic story, the, the story of eternity. They did live in this world, experience pain, and loved others. But the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life is just one of the stories in which they lived. So because of Jesus' resurrection, you do not need to fear death anymore. Of course, death is still scary. Of course, un uncertainty is hard to receive. In a very, very real way, you do not need to fear death anymore because Jesus conquered it. We all are acutely aware of death, especially these past few years. Whether it's the pandemic, we have lost loved ones. One of my closest friends died because of COVID. We lost people in this church because of the pandemic. The whole world is no longer naive to think that we are immune to death. 
but also just you're probably getting older. Many of you are getting older. And our bodies are breaking down. And we're realizing death is coming someday. Or our world is just plagued by war. We see human evil and we see death and death and death. But Jesus' resurrection tells you, tells me, we don't have to fear death because Jesus has defeated death. Now we notice coming out of this story, we notice there's this new identity that these women have. They've seen the risen Jesus. They're not condemned. He does not yell at them for abandoning him, for forgetting his teachings, for not being good disciples. But he restores them. He forgives them. He loves them. He receives their worship. And it is out of this new identity of being restored and forgiven and chosen by Jesus that these women, they can't help but go and tell everyone who will listen about what they have seen. Death has been overcome. Judgment is no longer over us if we trust in him. The risen Jesus, he really is God. And he is showing us compassion and gentleness and love and mercy. And so they go and tell. Verse 7, the angel tells them, go quickly and tell. And then later in verse 10, when Jesus sees them, he tells them to go and tell. And actually we're going to see, if you continue to read Matthew, we'll see that uh, in just a few more verses, Jesus again shows up and, and speaks to all of his disciples and tells them as well, go and make disciples. Tell the whole world, not just Jews, not just important people, not just the religious, but tell everyone the good news. The tomb is empty. Jesus is God. He is risen. The gospel that gives forgiveness of sin, the gospel that gives us power over death, that removes guilt and shame and gives eternal life through Jesus. It's here. Believe it. And that is the natural response to the gospel. When, when we understand it, when we believe it, when we cherish it and love it, we can't help but sharing it with others. And we do that as a church. Every time we gather, we preach the gospel, we eat the gospel, we sing the gospel. We see the gospel symbolized in baptism and so many other things. We do that uh, with our kids and our families. We share the gospel. We go and tell. We go into our schools, our workplaces, our sports teams, our dorms, our neighborhoods, wherever God places us, and we tell. We tell that Jesus is risen. We tell that death is defeated. We tell that forgiveness is possible. We tell that we don't have to be under judgment anymore. We go and we tell. And not only that, but we see these women and then later the rest of the disciples that they no longer have fear, that they go and tell everyone what they've seen and they worship him. Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. It's a big deal, right? Just, just, just think about that in your mind's eye. There's a guy and there's two ladies and they're at his feet, holding his feet, and they're worshiping him. It's strange, right? It's weird, right? Even to us in our culture, when sometimes we kind of joke, or maybe not us, but people in our culture joke about worshiping someone, they kind of, you know, do a fake bow down or they do something like that. Even when people do it, it's still kind of strange, right? You might be thinking that. Why would people worship 
these women? Why would they worship Jesus? Yet, if we think about human nature, it's, it's just normal for us to ascribe worth to others, to, to, to give respect, to give honor to others, others that we respect and, and have done great things, whether it's musicians or political figures or celebrities or business people or athletes. We just can't help but say, did you see what they did? Did you see her accomplishments? Did you see how amazing or beautiful or powerful they are? It's just human nature, right? We can't help but comment on others' success and power and beauty and accomplishments and brilliance and the way that they've ascended above us lonely, normal people. So if this is true of just human nature, then it shows that we were just designed to worship. We were designed to see and marvel at power and beauty and majesty and accomplishment and greatness. We're designed to give honor, glory, and worship to something and someone. And when we give it to humans, it is such a poor substitute for the infinitely greater and better God. But even still, these women are worshiping Jesus. And maybe you don't even know much about the Jewish religion, but you probably know that worshiping a human being is kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big no-no. Maybe you know nothing about the Bible, but the very first of the Ten Commandments, number one, the first, the literal first rule is have no other gods. Don't worship anything else besides the one true God. Yet these women are compelled by the empty tomb and seeing the risen Jesus to worship him. He is the one true God. And these women, and later the rest of the disciples, are risking everything by worshiping Jesus. They're risking losing their family, their friends, their livelihoods, their culture. And we we read in the rest of the Bible, and we hear in church history, most of them actually did. They were uh, kicked out of their culture and and their families. They lost their livelihoods. They were poor. And they died, many of them martyred and executed because of their faith. They're also uh, risking losing their lives. Like I said, most of the 12 disciples were executed because they believed this. But even more than all that, they're risking their eternal souls. Right? They're no longer worshiping the one true God as, as their religion believed it to be, as their history, their culture believed it to be. But they're now worshiping this human that claims to be God, and they're convinced. And again, and we see, we'll see in just a few verses, if you continue to read in Matthew, all of Jesus' disciples, the first thing they do when they see the risen Jesus is they worship him. They worship him. Despite the great risk and great cost, Jesus' Jesus's disciples couldn't help but worship the risen Christ. It's the correct response. It's the right response. And it's what millions of people have done now for two millennia. They don't just see Jesus as a good rabbi, as another holy man, as just another prophet, as another guru or an example to follow, but millions and millions and millions and millions of people for thousands of years have worshipped Jesus as God himself, as a second person of the Trinity, deserving our allegiance, our lives, and our worship. So that's the story of the resurrection. That's what it means to you and me today. So this morning, we have the same opportunity, the same opportunity as these 
women at Jesus' tomb, as the disciples after them, as the early church over the next few decades, we have the same opportunity. That is to believe. We have historical evidence. We have logical evidence of this being the, the best um, explanation for what truly happened. The disciples changed lives, the growth of the church, the empty tomb, the accounts of Jesus being seen and touched physically after he came back to life. But not just that, the story. The story of the gospel. So believe. Later on in the Bible, we read in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. Put your trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life, for no longer being under judgment and punishment anymore. Believe. That's all you have to do. Just believe. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from eternal death. Saved from the guilt of the evil thoughts and motives and actions that you've done. Saved from the, the shame of the evil that's been committed against you. Saved from the prison of self-focus and self-worship. Saved from separation from the one that you were designed to be united to and worship. Jesus is God. Jesus did rise from the dead in a physical body, never to die again. As the prophet Isaiah foretold about this Messiah, Jesus is the divine king who through his death and resurrection will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all of the faces. Death, punishment, judgment are powerful. But Jesus is more powerful. Acts 2.24 says, God raised Jesus up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That is the power of the risen Jesus. Death had no right to keep him. The grave did not have power to keep his heart from stop beating, from his neurons in his brain, from firing from his lungs, to fill with, with air, from rot to not be reversed and decay to stop. So trust in him today. Trust in the powerful, divine, risen Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Whether for the very first time or for the millionth time, trust in Jesus. And then out of that, out of that belief, your life will change. The Holy Spirit will, will dwell inside of you. You will have new, new motivations. You will have new power. And out of this belief, out of this trust in Jesus, out of this new identity, being a new creation, as we saw in baptism earlier, these six people coming up out of the water as new creations, filled with the Holy Spirit, new identities. Out of that, just like the women, just like the disciples, we will have the power to live without fear. To live without the fear of death, to live without the fear of condemnation. Not perfectly, but more and more as God continues to, to strengthen us and give us more faith. Out of our new identities in Christ, we will be given a desire and opportunities to go and tell. Wherever God has placed you, tell in word, tell in deed, tell publicly, tell privately, tell over a meal or tell over a lifetime the gospel of, of the risen Jesus Christ. And finally, 
we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and moved to worship. We won't be able to help but worship this man that was not just a man, but was also fully God. We will worship full of thanksgiving, full of wonder at the gospel, full in awe at the patience and compassion and mercy of our God. As we end here today, Tim Keller, an author of a book about the resurrection, says this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' death for us in our place and his resurrection and ascension. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know life is really like that. And it can be your story as well. God made you to love him supremely, but he lost you. And he returned to get you back. But it took the cross to do it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this good news. This good news that we were lost because of our sin. We were rebels. We ran away from you. We abandoned you. Yet, you loved us so much, you did not let that keep us from you. But you sent your son into this world to win us back, to die the death we deserved so that we could be resurrected just like your son was 2,000 years ago. Help us to have faith. Give us more trust in you, whether it's uh, for the first time, whether you're moving in hearts today, whether today's the day of salvation for people in this room, and also for those who are Christians, who, who have been raised with Christ, as we just saw in baptism. Help us to believe even more. Not trust in our own strength, our own knowledge, our own background, our own being good church members, but to trust alone in your death and your resurrection in our place for us. Thank you for this. We celebrate the empty tomb, the risen Savior. Pray this in Jesus' wonderful, powerful, risen, and saving name. Amen.